Welcome to the Conversations with Connexus podcast, a series of cerebral and thought-provoking discussions with experts across a range of fields relevant to fiduciary investing for a dignified retirement. Connexus Financial is a purpose-driven publisher with three digital media mastheads producing insightful content as podcasts, prose, and live events. You can subscribe to the commentary at each of them by visiting investmentmagazine.com.au, professionalplanner.com.au, and top1000funds.com. Please enjoy this episode of Conversations with Connexus. Hello, my name is Colin Tate. I'm the CEO and founder of Connexus Financial. Welcome to Redefining Leadership, and thanks to our partner, MLC Wealth. My guest today is Kerry Kennedy, an individual that is a global leader in human rights activism. She's the president of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, chair of Amnesty International's Leadership Council, and sits on the advisory board of the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment at Columbia University. Kerry is an alumnus of Brown University and Boston College Law School, and is a member of the Massachusetts Bar Association. Training in law has guided Kerry into an exploration of the evolution of the rule of law in promoting human rights around the world. Alongside leading campaigns on children's rights, indigenous land rights, LGBTI and women's rights, Kerry is educating and training the next generation of human rights activists through the RFK Training Institute in Europe. Not only a global citizen with influence on every continent, Kerry is also a prominent voice in US public life and someone that demonstrates the leadership approach needed to soothe the division that we see ahead of this most crucial upcoming election. A theme deployed by her father, Robert F. Kennedy, both as a Senator and former Attorney General of the United States, and also by her uncle, JFK as president of the US. It's my great pleasure to welcome today, Kerry Kennedy. Hello, Kerry. Hey, Colin, so great to be with you. Thanks so much for being here it's in, and being generous with your time. Let's start out with, how did you get started in human rights? Well, first of all, Colin, I just wanna say a big thank you to you for um, being such a good friend and for having us all together here tonight. You know, um, no one convenes like Connexus and, and that's because of your great, great heart that everybody recognizes. So I just want to say that. I also want to do a quick shout out to my nephew, Finn Kennedy, who's looking for a job in the financial sector. So if anybody out there is looking for someone like brilliant, fabulous, <laughs> <laughs> graduate of Brown University, Finn's your man. Okay, so how did I get started? I, You know, I've got uh, 10 brothers and sisters. I've got seven brothers. So when you, uh, when you grow up with seven brothers, you appreciate human rights at a very young age. <laughs> um, but I, uh, some of my earliest memories are when my father was attorney general at the height of the civil rights movement. And uh, my uncle, of course, was president, as you as you mentioned. And our house was always filled with uh, with with uh, um, people seeking racial justice, um, people in the civil rights movement, people uh, like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who were working on farm workers' rights. A lot of Native American Indian. Um, activists. And so that's, I. when I learned to tie my shoes, I made sure if I took, put my left shoe on first, I tied my right shoe first because I wanted there to be equality and I didn't, I wanted it to be fair. Um, so, I mean, I think you get those values from the ether, from the people around you. Um, I, you know, when I remember once going to visit my dad at the Justice Department, I was very, very young and we used to go there all the time. But one time he wrote me this letter and it said, Dear Carrie, um, today was a historic day, not just because you came to visit me, but 
because um, a uh, an African-American was admitted to the University of Alabama over the objections of the governor. It happened just a few moments ago, and I hope these events are long past by the time you get your pretty little head to college. Love and kisses, Daddy. And, um, you know, I have that letter on my wall, which is why I remember it so well. But a lot of things happened between that day and the day I went to college. Um, most of them fabulous. I grew up in this strong family, a lot of love, a lot of faith. Um, all of the all of the the accoutrements that you would ever wish upon a child, great education, et cetera. But there were certain things that happened that were so chaotic and awful that even with all those resources, they shook my world. So the death of my uncle when I was uh, four years old, um, then the death of my father, 1968, just before that, the death of Martin Luther King. You know, when you lose your father at such a young age, a lot of people could step in and do things, but it leaves the work of love undone. And that can never be done by someone else. And um, then that's when I was in third grade. When I was in fifth grade, one of my best friends came to me whose parents were always at our house. And she said, um, my father is beating up my mother. I just didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know whether it was a secret. Should I tell anybody? Uh, and that was kind of crazy to me. And then when I was in high school, two of my best friends were raped. And again, that question, is this a secret? Who do I tell? How do I take care of them? And then uh, one of my really close friends whose family I lived with when I was a senior in high school, because um, I was in boarding school and I lived with a local family, uh, the, this, the son who was my age was um, was gay and he wasn't out of the closet and he was one of the first Americans to die from HIV AIDS. And, um, you know, all those things were just so chaotic. And then I took a summer internship at Amnesty International when I was in college and I was uh, documenting abuses committed by U.S. immigration officials against refugees from El Salvador. And somebody handed me a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I read that document and I realized that all the things that had made my life so chaotic had one thing in common. They were all violations of human rights, political assassinations, violence against women, violence against uh, sexual minorities and more. And that I could use that document and work with the anti-apartheid leaders in South Africa and refuseniks in Russia and the mothers of the disappeared in El Salvador. And I could right those wrongs and I could protect me, my family, the people I love, the country I loved by using that document. And so that's what I've done for the rest of my life. Wow, what a, what a great way to start, Kerry. I'm, I'm going to come back to RFK in a moment and what it stands for and the work that great work that it does. Uh, but I just want to touch on, uh, you know, you mentioned the tragedies there uh, that you've experienced uh, early in life. You've also experienced four family tragedies just in this last 12 months. Um, what, personally for Kerry, what have you developed as this strength for resilience and coping mechanisms for dealing with so much tragedy in your life? Uh, well, you know, um, first of all, I don't think I've figured it out. I think there's just a lot of pain. I think that, you know, the the two things we're guaranteed as human beings are suffering and love. And um, hopefully through love, you you understand other people's suffering and you can create some bonds that way. Um, that, that are sources of strength. I, I, I mean, I think if you're, if you're going to walk through the mouth of hell, you got to listen carefully to what lessons there are to teach you. And maybe there's none, but there might be something in there to learn. Um, so what do I do? I pray a lot. I have a very, very strong faith life. 
I do love meditation. Um, I try and get some exercise. Uh, I surround myself with people who I really love and enjoy being with. Um, I wrote a book, which is here, Speak Truth to Power, and it's interviews with 51 human rights defenders around the world, like Archbishop Tutu and Elie Wiesel and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and others. And I asked them about courage. And there were a couple things that came out of that that really speak to me about resilience. Um, one is the sense of agency, that I'm not a victim. I can, I can create change. So I think that's really important. Secondly is... Um, meaningful life, you know, feeling like what you're doing is important and it's going to, is of service, is going to make the world better. And then uh, a third thing that's really important is they all have a sense of humor. I mean, when I listened to the tapes, 46 of those people had been tortured. But when I listened to my tapes of the interviews, I am just laughing out loud in every single one. So I think that that's, uh, you know, um, when I'm feeling really blue, I I go on YouTube and look at Saturday Night Live skits. Uh, <laughs> just got to laugh. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. And I know that about you. So Kerry, uh, look, we're 11 minutes only into this hour. You've already given us some gold. Uh, for those that have just joined us, welcome to Reinventing Leadership. Uh, the, as the name suggests, I'm suggesting that the world really needs to think about leadership differently to how we have in the, in the past. And we're here today with Kerry Kennedy to explore what this new world of leadership might look like to get us out of so many messes on so many fronts. Um, if you'd like to ask a question of Kerry, use Slido on the right hand side of your screen. We'll be spending one third of this hour in the middle uh, dealing with uh, questions of our audience. Kerry, let's move back to um, RFK and the great work you do around the world. You've created this footprint to support human rights. Your four main pillars are holding governments accountable, working with corporates, training the next generation, as I mentioned earlier, like you are with future activists in Europe, and also recognising our heroes like you're about to do with your Ripples of Hope uh, annual fundraiser and awards in December, which is online for the first time this year, and people should go look that up. I was I had the great fortune of being there with you uh, a few years ago when President Obama presented, and it's an outstanding event, a, a way of supporting you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, these four foundations some more? Yeah, sure. Okay, so first of all, this year we are um, we're presenting the Ripple of Hope Award to Colin Kaepernick and Tony Fauci. So it's going to be an amazing event, and everybody's invited. So, so uh, please um, do do come and look. But um, yeah, so we we hold governments responsible for human rights abuses through advocacy and litigation. So on the international arena, for instance, when Uganda passed a law that made homosexuality punishable by life in prison without parole, we sued the government, we overturned the law. And um, we have about 35 cases at any given time. They're all... Uh, cases that impact the entire country, normally the entire region, and we've never lost a case. So um, we're really, uh, I'm very, very proud of our team. They're incredible lawyers and they do a great job. Um, domestically, we're really looking at immigration, farm workers, and racial justice. So that's our holding governments responsible. But today, of the 100 largest economies on earth, 75 of them are no longer governments, which is what they were when you and I were, were little kids. Um, today, those are corporations, 75 of the top 100 economies. So five years ago, there were 50. Today, there are 75. And so we feel like if you're interested in human rights, you got to be working with the companies. And we do that through the investors in those companies. So we have had, like Connexus, uh, uh, investors conferences over the last 12 years, really focusing on the S in ESG. And um, we do that in a couple ways, which I can come back to. But then we believe if we hold the governments responsible and the corporations responsible, 
It'll be for naught if we don't train the next generation of human rights defenders. So we do training of teachers. Um, we have lesson plans from kindergarten through law school. And we teach that to about, last year it was about 35,000 students. And, um, and mostly online. So we're really used to working with teachers online. And then uh, finally, we recognize the heroes as we are with, with Fauci and Kaepernick this year. Thank you, Kerry. And so there's, uh, there's many things that uh, you're trying to reform around the world, but one of those is bail reform um, in US prisons, uh, uh, and in particular, uh, black incarceration also in the US. Can you share us a little bit more about the detail of this work, please? Sure, so in the United States, when, uh, when you're accused of a crime, police arrest you, they bring you before a judge within 24 hours. Um, if you are if you are considered a, a vital danger to society or yourself, they put you in jail. If you are not deemed vital, and that's only like 1% of the cases, if you're not deemed a vital, a, a, a clear and present danger, they um, set bail. The reason for setting bail is to assure that you will show up for your next hearing. Um, if you're wealthy, you pay the bail and you go home. So it doesn't matter what the crime is, nothing else matters, just all you do is pay that bail. Harvey Weinstein, accused by 90 women of rape and, uh, and sexual abuse, pays a million dollar bail, he goes home to prepare for trial. If you don't have the resources, the financial resources to pay that bail, they manacle your hands together, they manacle your feet, they throw you into the back of a truck and they drive you to a jail. And in, in New York, they drive you to an island, Rikers Island, and then they leave you there until you have a trial. And that trial could take a year or two where you're being held in jail no question of your innocence has been brought before a judge, but they're just holding you there because you can't make bail. So this is really targeting people who are living in poverty, and it specifically targets people, you know, uh, who who are um, who have darker skin color. So people are brown, people are black, Native Americans, etc. So we're going to uh, talk lots of uh, confronting and difficult questions in this hour, as you might expect. Uh, the first one I want to ask about is the uh, recent calls to defund the police in the United States. What do you make of that? Well, you know, a lot of people say that that's a, uh, it's got a bad phrase, defund the police. But I like the phrase defund the police, and I'm going to tell you why. If most of the people on this call, if we were having dinner tonight and and someone said, what do you think about the police? And somebody said, yeah, we need to reform the police. Everyone would agree and say, you know, pass the hamburgers. And did you see something on Netflix last week? But if you say instead, we're going to defund the police, suddenly you've got everybody's attention. What does that mean? How is that going to impact me? What does that mean for my life? What does it mean for my property? What does it mean for my safety? Um, so that's why I like, nobody else likes that word, but I like defund the police. Um, but really what it means is that right now in, in many cities in the United States, city budgets spend 40% or more of their city budgets on policing. But what are the police doing? They're doing everything except policing. So according to federal statistics, last year, less than 1% of murderers ended up in prison. Okay, less than 15% of rapists ended up in prison. So we're asking the police to do a whole bunch of things we're asking them to be mental health officers. We're asking them to be in schools and be guidance counselors. We're asking them to help homeless people who are on the street. 
and be social workers. So we're asking them to do a whole bunch of things that are not about policing. And what really defund the police means is take the funding that's now going into the police and put it into the places that really truly make our communities safer. Make sure that uh, communities have great education, have great anti-violence um, uh, programs, have great uh, capacity to put kids into jobs. All of those things have health care, have mental health care, have all of those, you know, arts and sports so that people can live full, great lives. And, um, and that is what really reduces crime. That's very clear. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, I'm now going to move our conversation to arguably uh, the biggest issue uh, in the United States right now, and that is uh, unbelievable inequality and, and, and racial issues and racial separation. And to lead into this now tough segment of this conversation, uh, we're going to play a, a brief video called Mindless Menace of Violence, and it's about two minutes long, um, and I do warn our audience it is confronting. We'll play that clip now. Whenever any American's life is taken unnecessarily, whether it is done in the name of the law or in defiance of the law, whenever we do this, then the whole nation is degraded. And yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Too often we excuse those who are willing to build their own lives on the shattered dreams of other human beings. Some accuse others of rioting and inciting riots have by their own conduct invited them. This is the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books. This is the breaking of a man's spirit by denying him the chance to stand as a father and as a man amongst other men. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as alien. For when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color, then you also learn to confront others, not as fellow citizens, but as enemies, to be met not with cooperation, but with conquest, to be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence, repression breeds retaliation, and only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. We must admit the vanity of our false distinctions and learn to find our own advancement and search for the advancement of all. So Kerry, where do we start on the issue of race right now in the United States? And uh, I, guess, uh, I guess one place to start is where are we now in terms of race relations? Well, you know, I think we're in an interesting spot. I think he as uh, look, I think that people feel like they're they're either victims or heroes. Um, and the difference between a victim and a hero is agency. It's act it's activism. It's taking action. And I think people felt very, very victimized by Corona and they were stuck in their apartments and their houses. The best they could do was wear a mask and, and try and hold down their job. And they're mad at our government and they're mad at the failures of the administration and the terror of, of Corona. And then George Floyd got killed and was murdered. And people said, I am not going to sit by one minute longer. And they went into the streets. And so we have this moment where 
um, where tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands of people marched across the United States and around the world, declaring that black lives matter. And they weren't just black people, like you see in the 60s. These are huge white crowds and huge black crowds and huge brown crowds and huge other crowds. And so there's this moment right now when there's a willingness by political leaders, by business leaders, by educators, by ordinary citizens to sacrifice themselves in order to create a more just country and a more just world. And I think that that's, we have huge potential, but we need to harness that energy and make concrete change. We've got uh, many, many questions coming in from our live audience, uh, and uh, and many of them are quite controversial. Many of them are political, as you might imagine. So let's take those questions in a moment. But just before we do, uh, why do you think Trump was first elected in 2016? And what do you really think are his re-election chances in four or five weeks from now? Well, this is what I think. I think there are a lot of Americans um, who feel like they made a deal with America. And the deal was, if you, um, if you stay out of trouble and you get a high school education and you don't go to jail, we're gonna give you a job. And it's gonna be mind numbing and horrific. And it's gonna be spirit robbing. We're going to shove you down a coal mine and let you out at the age of 65. Or we're going to put you on a factory line and you're just gonna do this for the next 40 years. But if you do that, we'll give you certain things. We'll give you job security. We'll give you a house that you own. We'll give you retirement uh, benefits. We'll, get, we'll teach your children so well that they'll have a better job than you. And you'll build a community you love and a country that's the richest and most con powerful country on earth. And so they took that deal. And they did that. And they went down that coal mine or they started on that factory floor and then the company moved overseas or the coal mine closed down. And they were already so broken that they couldn't get another decent job. And the, um, the unions have been so decimated in our country that the jobs that they can get are low wage jobs with no benefits. And then um, 2008 came along and their house is underwater so they don't own their house. We didn't educate their kids. Their communities are full of people with the opioids and their country is not the richest, most powerful country on earth. That country is gonna be China, which is our enemy and people are mad. And they feel like they're in the, the basement of an apartment building and they're living in that basement and their toilet is broken. And the top of that, that apartment building are living people who look like you and me and other, the, everybody else on this call, and they're powerful, and they're drinking champagne and smoking cigars and dancing all night. And um, these people are yelling, my toilet is broken. And they're yelling back, well, just uh, vote for me and I'll fix it after the next election. And so finally they go and try and use liquid plumber, it doesn't work, call a plumber, pay $35 that they can't afford, it doesn't work. And so finally they walk down the street and they get six sticks of dynamite and they throw it down the toilet and they light it on fire. And they say, this is gonna blow up my apartment, but it's gonna get your attention. And that's Donald Trump, that's the six sticks of dynamite. And I think that that's really at the heart of his power and his message of anger and uh, and marginalization and, you know, blow up the system. Okay, thank you. Let's move to some questions here. We'll try and make some quick answers here and get through There's about 15 questions that are already being prioritized. <laughs> First one relates directly to what you've just said. Uh, your father, Robert Kennedy, stood on a truck in Indiana to tell a crowd that MLK had died and talked them down from a violent response with calm humanity and empathy? Maybe this is a rhetorical question, but Christopher Brown is asking, could Trump? No, of course, 
Trump couldn't. But, you know, it's not just that Trump couldn't. A lot of good Democrats who care deeply about these issues couldn't do it either. The reason my father was could do that is because he had spent a lot of time in that community. He had spent he had spent the last eight years working on civil rights, working with black communities across our country. So he had gained people's trust. Um, and and you know that rally was organized by John Lewis. So um, they were great, great, great friends and colleagues, and they worked together. And that's what we have to do. Naomi Brooks is saying Black Lives Matter protests are not new to the US. What do you think that it will take to unite the US, create equality and reduce polarization? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think if we snapped our fingers and overnight fixed the ratio the the legal system and fixed the policing system we'd still be in the same place and we'd be in the same place uh five years from now ten years from now primarily starting with the investment industry we we are in a 70 trillion dollar industry in which less than two percent of those $70 trillion are, um, are invested by women and minority-owned firms. So until we fix that problem and make sure there's equality in where, in who's making those investments and where those investments go, we're not really going to be able to fix the racial justice issues in this country. We'll talk some more about on that in a moment as well. A question from um, from Indy One Jinji. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Hi, Kerry. You mentioned the top seventy five governments, economies in the world are corporations now. Is it good or bad? How do you see a post COVID world balancing out these powers? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I think that the 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 problem with corporations having that amount of power is they don't have the checks and balances that governments do. So that's that becomes the challenge. Um, you know, there are some corporations are more uh, more trusted than politicians than governments these days. So that's kind of interesting to me. But you know, do I want Facebook making decisions that impact my life? My life? No, I don't. I mean, I've been to Cox's Bazaar. I've, I've interviewed those refugees who were part of a, uh, who were you know, um, part of a genocide committed by the Myanmar government, and, um, and and they use Facebook in order to make that happen. So I think. Until I think we need to have much, much more say, much more control and much more responsibility by those corporations. Totally agree. Uh, two different think tanks. I've got questions from here. Um, uh, one is uh, Nigel Finch from the Sydney Institute. Kerry, in the event of a disputed result in the presidential election, what risks are there that further divisions will ensure and, uh, and, and then protract, protract, protracted legal battles? Oh man, I I mean, look with Ruth Bader Ginsburg who just died and the Supreme Court, the United States has three major cases that will impact this election which they're going to decide before the election and all of those decisions are going to go to Trump. Um Trump has been asked twice in the last 2 days uh, what he would do if he loses, and he will not say, I will peacefully hand over power. First time a president of the United States has ever said that. I think we're in an extremely dangerous situation in our country. Um, I think there is a, a good chance that this goes to the Supreme Court, um, as we've seen in recent years. And uh, I think that court is uh, will be packed by um, by one party and is has lost and is losing and is in danger of losing even more uh, the faith of the American people. So I think it's a very precarious situation. I mean, do you do you, do you sometimes consider Kerry in the dark of night that your uh, your you know uncle 
uh, who was assassinated as president and your father who died in, uh, you know, in, in the work that he was doing as attorney general, would they be rolling in their graves now at the current environment we find ourselves in this political toxicity and the situation the United States currently is in? Well, I think, you know, I think that uh, Uncle Jack spent his entire presidency trying to create peace and trying to keep the United States from going into wars um, and uh, dividing into conflict. I think my father's entire 1968 campaign was based on trying to bring our country together. And, you know, he managed to um, get votes from poor whites and poor blacks from inner city uh, people and from people in the rural farmers in the countryside. And he really believed in bringing our country together. I think that's the opposite of what Trump has done. I think he's maniacal. I think he's uh, he he's, has a really very, very serious um, uh, mental health issues in a way that makes him in uh, incapable of of being a leader for for our country yeah i'm afraid i agree i've having just read mary trump's book also further seems to underline that from a uh, from a psychologist's uh, perspective uh, i'll take another couple of questions and go back to some of my prepared material uh david bell uh, executive director of uh the connexus institute which is something my organization funds uh it's been created to to uh to help look into the future of retirement and creating dignity in retirement for all people the question is kerry if you were limited to recommending just one or two ways to stop and reverse the trend of rising inequality what would you recommend um Okay, so there's two things I would recommend. I would recommend a serious rethinking of the uh, financial services industry, number one. We have to do that. And number two, I think one thing that would that, that that's within our reach of the people on this call that could really make a big difference is um, the E and the ESG was incredibly successful because they put a number on it, and that was your carbon footprint. So that was a number that economists could use, that everybody could count, and that's just what they used. And we didn't do that with the S. The S is all over the place. So we need a number we can all agree on for the S, and I think that's income inequality. And um, that is a you know, precise number that can be calculated and would focus, uh, force everybody to start thinking about income inequality in our in all of our financial decisions. Um, a, a gentleman called Philippe Biu of Medallion Financial is asking, what can corporates do to promote diversity when forelawns and retrenchment will dominate labor markets in the years now to come? Well, I think there's a, there are a number of things that corporations can do. Um, so I think you one thing is uh, workplace dignity. How do you treat people in the workplace? How are they treated with respect? Are they listened to? Can they come to work as they are, who they are, and be respected? So lots of issues around that. Second, is the work them is the work that they do valued? Can they take pride in their work? Do they know that they have a future at this company, that the company will train them as technology changes? Do they, so how are they treated? Can they be take that pride? And then the third issue around workplace dignity is how, um, how does work treat them when they leave work? So are they, what's their compensation package? What's their, uh, do they get healthcare? Will they retire with dignity? Everything around that. So I think that's one piece of it. Then what are you doing on your boards? Can you, you know, uh, increase the number of, of black people on your boards? If you're an investor, say everyone in our portfolio companies has to put five black people on the board in the next three years. You know, you can do things like that. You can, and then I think there are other things that companies can do to address um, anti-black violence. So for instance, uh, 
um, remove yourself from any portfolio companies that sell facial recognition software to police uh, or or immigration because that's that's used to target black populations um, or listening software or uh, or private jails. So there's I think there's a, there are many many things that companies can do uh, that investors can do. Um, that can really create change. We're already 40 minutes into this hour. I can't believe how fast it's going. A few more questions and uh, we'll go back to some of the other material. Question here from um, a person or organization you definitely know, Kerry, Willis Towers Watson, one of the world's um, great financial consulting organizations, Dana Zinarova. Her question is, what can we do to promote equality for women in a world headed away from globalization and towards anonymously local rules and governance? I'm so glad you asked that. And let me just say that uh, that Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights and Willis Towers Watson partnered recently on a workplace dignity um, program. So we're really, really happy to be talking to you. Um, so women, uh, again, as I said, uh, investors can demand that portfolio companies put a certain number of women on the board. That's extremely important. Um, then uh, women in the C-suite, also very, very important. But uh, we have to look at where the women are coming from in the C-suite. So too many places, too many companies um, take a woman from HR and say, okay, that's the woman in the C-suite. And then, but you never see a CEO who comes from the HR department. CEOs only come from finance and uh, finance or sales. So I think it's very important for companies to be really conscious, conscious of that and um, set up programs to make sure that women come from from sales uh, and from finance into the C-suite, and that women are included in the um, in the finance committees at companies. Christopher Brown is asking: COVID brought our political and social institutions closer together. I think he's saying here in Australia, uh, and a uh, and, and with a sense of of national unity. Why did the same pandemic cause more polarization in the United States? Oh my gosh, that's so easy because of Trump. I mean, he was terrible. Like my my I'm my ex-husband is Andrew Cuomo. I you know, who wants to say something nice about their ex-husband? He was great. He was so amazing. And he showed us what real leadership looks like, how you can um in in New York which was so inundated with no help from the federal government, how to get this disease under control, how to speak to people about what was going on, how to say, this is what I know and this is what I don't know. And as soon as he was given more information, he shared it every single day. People were glued to his press conferences because he that was the only source of the truth for our country. So, so, so I so think- those listening and not aware um, of what, what Kerry's referring to here, Andrew, um, her former husband is the New York governor who's oh, been, an <laughs> been an absolute standout, right, in, 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 in leadership. Do you think besides the information flow and so on and so forth, is the distinguishing factor in terms of the subject matter here today of reinventing leadership, is it the compassion that he brings? Is it the vulnerability? Is it the transparency? How, what would you describe um, Andrew's leadership as a shining difference he, to Trump, well, for example. Yeah, no, I think in under this, uh, you know, in, in this circumstance, he brought all of that to the table. It was that sense of compassion? It was that sense of caring? It was that sense of pride in New York? It was of encouraging people, and it, it was, you know, talking. Um, Talking with his brother, his brother is Chris Cuomo, who is on CNN and sort of one of the, the main correspondents. The two of them sort of talking back and forth about their mother and who loves her the most, you know. So there was just this real human kind of loving side. They talked about what food they're eating and cooking, et cetera. Um, so 
you got that and you got this person who was being transparent and who cared so deeply about what was going on in in New York City and in New York State and sharing that information all, you know, really, as you say, showing what great leadership looks like. Let's um let's go back to some uh, personal things for a moment with you, Kerry. Uh, and and the and the first topic I want to discuss is fame. You were born into fame, and fame is a very interesting, curious thing. Many people strive and chase it down. Um, as I say, you were born born into it, um, and you've thrived and done many things and made great use of it. Um, when has it been burdensome? You know, when is fame difficult, and when has that been a drag on your life? Uh, well, here's the good, here's the blessing that I have, which is that I'm not recognizable walking down the street, you know, nobody knows who I am. So I have sort of the best of both worlds because I can take out that big tail that I wag around and use it to, um, to <laughs> I like that. create change or to get a meeting with somebody or to, um, you know, uh, try and advance human rights, but it's not that I'm going to be assaulted by people uh, otherwise. So that's good. I think in in my family, of course, uh, you mentioned we had four deaths in the last 11 months. Um, and by, you know, one is my 92-year-old aunt, but also my niece who's 40, my another niece who is 21 years old and my nephew who is eight. And um, under each of those circumstances, there's a lot of press who who come uh, and sit at the end of the driveway and, you know, are, are there at the moment of privacy and pain and, um, and agony. Uh, and so I think, in some ways that's hard, but in some ways it's a gift because um, because you don't feel, you know you don't feel alone. You feel like you know people are there with you and and um, and they feel your pain. And so there's just this tremendous amount of compassion that happens. I mean, there are a few haters out there, but but there's this tremendous amount of compassion. And one of the things that happens in my life a lot is people will say, uh, oh, your father is Bobby Kennedy. Let me tell you where I was when he was killed. Now, that's a very weird thing to say when you think about it. Like saying to somebody, let me, let me remind you of the worst moment of your entire life. Um, but I also feel like it's a gift in a way as well, because people are willing to share the pain that they felt and they know that you can understand that pain. And so there's this incredible human connection and, uh, you know, going back to we both suffered and I want to connect with you. You're not alone. I'm not alone. We're together by total strangers, and that happens again and again. So I think that that's uh, also a gift. So let's uh, move to the future. Uh, we have 12 minutes left of this uh, wonderful interview. Um, if you've joined us just now, you've joined very late in the piece, and you can watch it on playback. Uh, but we're chatting with Kerry Kennedy uh, live from uh, Cape Cod, a hyenas port, in fact, uh, her home uh, north of New York, south of Boston. I'd like to move now uh, and, and, and look at the our audiences that will uh, watch this either live or on playback um, are drawn from all across the financial services ecosystem around the world, um, including allocators within pension funds, endowments and sovereign wealth funds. We've talked about this a little bit already, Kerry, but let's talk a little bit about more about what can they do to help, especially those that would say, well, hey, I've got fiduciary capital, I've got the responsibility of returns first. Uh, how can they help in that area of, as you've described, human rights in that S from the ESG? 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think that there, there are sort of different pots of actions that you can take. At the board level of your institutions, you can uh, eliminate processes that um, that uh, um, and decisions that uphold racist structures and policies. Um, again, like hiring black leaders um, at the board level and in the C-suite level, uh, you can do as as our our chair. Robert Smith from Vista Equity Partners has demanded that 2% of the leading banks in our country invest, uh, I mean, that the lead, the 10 leading banks in our country invest 2% of their profits over the next 10 years in Black-owned businesses. You can look at, you can make a commitment to um, invest uh, and to use Black-owned businesses, not just for your food services and to um, and to to the, clean the offices, um, as so many do, but also as your lawyers and um, in your investment portfolios. Who's making those those decisions? Make sure that you have a wide range of women, Black, others um, in making those decisions. So those are a few things. We actually put together, and I'm, you might be able to see that I'm looking at this cheat sheet, but um, we put together a, a list of actions that investors can take to create change on the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'd be really happy to share that with you. Maybe you could share it with the, with the group. Absolutely happy to do that. I'm going to go back Thank to you. another couple of questions. Uh, the audience, Denise Allen, who uh, runs a super fund here uh, as, a, as a board director of AV Super, she's asking why can't the US with a population of circa 330 million find high quality younger candidates to run for president and give hope and inspiration to the people? Why can't we find young candidates? I mean, I think that the we had... 12 people running in the Democratic, well, it started with like 23 people running in the Democratic side this year. So I think there was a pretty wide range of people um, and they were terrific. I have to say, I love Joe Biden. I think that he's um, committed his entire life to our country. He understands foreign policy better than anybody else who is running. He um, ha is... I loved to watch the debates and see his answers compared to everybody else's because Joe Biden's answers inevitably um, said, well, here are the three government, here are the three federal programs that have to do with that and that you could change around or refund or do something about it. And it's because he knows those programs so well because he's written so many of them and worked on so many of them for so long. So... Um, I don't know. I I don't think that it's a question of age or youth. I think it's a question of vision um, and of capacity to lead. I think that we're in, I mean, I'm in a country now that is so divided and so angry. And I think in a way, there is nobody better than Joe Biden to be president under those circumstances because he's just I mean, he's got a soul full of love, that guy, and and he can't help but express it, and he does. So I I think he'll be a great president. I hope he's elected. Okay, we've got seven minutes to go. I'm going to try and get through these seven great questions. So first one from Diane Liomo. In Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, he referred to unspoken patriotic political imperatives in the press. Why is this no longer the case? Quick one, if you can. I have no idea what that means. Sorry. I have to go back and read my Chomsky. Okay. Um, Tim Mitchell-Adams, how do we generate great urgency around the globe for the adoption of the United Nations SDGs by companies across the globe to meet sustainability challenges that you've spoken of? How do we... I'm so, I'm so glad you're raising that issue. I think that that's really one of the challenges of the SDGs. But I think corporations 
more and more are understanding the importance of them in their supply chains um, in uh, creating workplace dignity internally and in their sales. So I think that that's good, but we need to do much, much better job of getting the word out about the SDGs and creating demand from people around the world to uh, to meet the SDGs. A couple of personal questions to uh, to round this out, if I may, Kerry. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy is to millions of people to this day the greatest president that America never had. What does his life, his work, and his words mean to you? Wow, well, that's a big one in 30 seconds or less. But, you know, what I think was most important about my father was his uh, moral imagination. You know, somebody talked about his that speech in Indianapolis after Martin Luther King died and his ability to say to a crowd that was ready to riot, um, for those of you who are angered by the injustice of this act and tempted towards violence, I can just tell you that my own brother was killed by a white man with a gun. And try and imagine a political leader facing a crowd ready to riot and then saying this incredibly deep personal story and how that impacted him. I mean, that that to me is so important and so great about him. And I, I think that's really what protected us during the Cuban Missile Crisis from nuclear war was his ability to see that despite what Khrushchev's speeches were saying, that just as Uncle Jack was being pressured by the military industrial complex in the Pentagon to go to war and drop a nuclear bomb on Cuba, Khrushchev also was being pressured by his military to to go to war with the United States, but that's not what either of those men wanted. And it was my dad's and Uncle Jack's ability to see that and then find another way to uh, talk to Khrushchev that saved saved the world, really, literally. So one of the campaigns of Connexus Financial, Kerry, is to build a dignified and secure retirement system around the world what will your own retirement look like, do you think? How would you like that to look one day? Well, you know, I'm not planning to retire ever. Um, but that said, I uh, I work at a human rights organization and we um, take our, uh, our employees, um, we value our employees. We believe that the best thing that we have are our employees. So we pay them, we compensate them well. Um, we Everybody has a pension plan from the day that they walk in. If they work for us for a month or they work for us for 30 years, they've got a pension. Um, and I think that making sure that those pensions are are um, meeting the needs of the people is really a responsibility of every company, even a struggling human rights organization. So uh, if you've been inspired this, by this conversation, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to look up the Robert Human Rights, Robert Kennedy Human Rights Foundation um, uh, organization. And if you have a philanthropic dollar that needs a great place to go, um, as uh, as I have done with uh, in the past, uh, please do donate to Kerry Kennedy's organization to support the work that you've just been hearing about. We'll bring up a slide now, which shows you uh, how to make contact and how to make um, a donation if you'd like to, to the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Foundation. Um, that slide should be uh, coming up. Um, uh, for you now. Um, final question for you, Kerry. Um, this Again, this series is called Reinventing Leadership and it's been a great pleasure chatting to you today. So thank you once again for being generous with your time, your information, your spirit and your ideas. Um, what does the leader of the future need to look like to confront the environment, economic and social crises facing our planet? What advice do you have for the leaders of the future? Well, I think they should uh, look like um, women. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I think uh, I go back to that sense of of uh, compassion. Um, I think 
having in mind that um, the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. So really listening to what people need who are most affected by the, the difficulties that we face um, in our world. I think the belief in democracy that, uh, that gives people agency over the decisions that impact their lives, education, um, housing, healthcare, their jobs, and then solidarity, a sense that we're all in this together and that we're stronger when we're together we're, and we can do better if we all work together with compassion and love. Well, thank you. And on that note, I, uh, I wish you well, Kerry. I wish uh, the, um, your nation um, finds, the, uh, finds it in their heart and uh, how they vote uh, for a, a, a world that uh, is, um, is more peaceful than the one we seem to be experiencing at the moment. And I hope um, the pandemic also um, soon comes under control. There are many challenges facing us. Don't go just yet, but I, I hope everyone watching this has enjoyed this episode of Redefining Leadership. This content will be available for playback via Professional Planner, top1000funds.com and Investment Magazine. I'd like to once again thank our sponsor of this and partner of this event, uh, MLC Wealth. Please join me next episode with Dr. Vivian Ming, a global AI guru from Silicon Valley, joining us on 9 October. Thanks to all of you for your questions and engagement. Once again, Kerry Kennedy, a great pleasure. Take care until I see you next time. Thank you. And thanks again for being with us today. Okay, thanks, uh, Colin. Thanks for everything. And please, somebody hire my nephew, Finn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Goodbye.